Hello, Gary Williams here. Welcome to my In Conversation podcast, a mishmash of chit-chats with friends and influencers across the world. Now, a few years ago, I was hosting a UK radio show where each guest would choose four songs and tell me why they were important to them. Now, due to music copyright issues, I can't share any of that music with you here just the conversation. So the music's gone, which might sound a bit weird sometimes, but I think it's still worth listening to what these great guests had to say. Enjoy. Hello, this is Gary Williams with your weekly fix of great conversation and the best music. This week, we celebrate the centenary of Frank Sinatra, and we've got a very special show for you. As well as Old Blue Eyes, there's music from Bob Leeper, Kenny Clark, and Bert Camford, all chosen by this week's special guest. He's one of the UK's greatest living trumpet players. The list of people he's worked with reads like a roll call of legends. Ella Fitzgerald, Antonio Carlos Jobim, Sammy Davis Jr., Fred Astaire, Bing Crosby, and of course, Frank Sinatra. In fact, there's so much to talk about, it's an extended edition of In Conversation. In Conversation with Gary Williams. Tony Fisher, welcome to the show. Hello, Gary. So what's special about that record for you? Well, obviously, I've been in this business since, you know, forever, and I've done a lot of good things and a lot of terrible things, but one, one or two stick out in your mind, and for me... For me personally, although it might not appeal to everyone, this is the what I class as probably the, one of the ni- best and nicest things I ever played a solo. You know what I mean? I've done lots of things here, there, and there, but this one sticks out because it is a very good quality album, and I, I think it shows me off in what I like to be seen as, put it that way. Which is what? I'm really like a solo-type player. Although I worked in studios for, God, no, what, 40 years, 50 years nearly, playing in sections, playing lead trumpet. I started my whole career off, believe it or not, on the stage. A boy prodigy, short trousers and all that, playing solo trumpet. Consequently, I was always that soloistic type player. So to do a solo thing that satisfies me for myself, I don't care what anybody else said. They said, that's great, and it might have been a load of rubbish, you know. Well, this, this one I particularly like. Do you remember the first time somebody put a trumpet in your hand? Oh, that would be my dad. He put a cornet in my hand when I was about five because uh, being from Manchester, it was a hotbed of brass bands. There was every, every big factory, every coal mine, everything like that had a brass band. And he said to me, right, oh, there's a cornet, learn it, like they do in Manchester, you see. <laughs> so, <laughs> there's modern parenting there, for you. That's it, that's <laughs> it. I realise now I had a very sad childhood because for me it was normal to go to school, come home, take the cornet out and go with my dad to a brass band practice. I'm not talking once, I'm talking five nights a week. I was deprived of all playing football with the other kids and everything. I was out playing bloody cornet in a brass band, wasn't I? I, I thought that was normal. Everybody did, you know. <laughs> presumably, there weren't so many other kids your age no, no, around. So no. you were surrounded by adults, though. That's right. Time. That's right. And, and I was always small for my age, tiny kid. And I'd take the trumpet out, which was too big for me. And they expected to hear me play Bar Bar Black Sheep. And instead of that, I played trumpet blues and cantabile of Harry James. <laughs> and they'd go, wow, what the hell is that? Were you, were you what they called a child star? Probably, yes. Well, I was because the start of it all, really, in, into the sort of big thing, was a, a talent show, you know, which was the forerunner of all these 
Oh, what can I say, X Factor, and the, oh, don't talk about that. Anyway, this was a proper talent show. They used to call them talent shows in those days. In other words, the people that did it could really do whatever they did, you know. This is pre-television. <laughs> I went to this audition with Carol. My mother used to take me to auditions for doing things. I was quite only little, as I've said. And I went for this audition. Manchester Hippodrome, it was in those days. Moss Empire, it was. I go down with my little trumpet, and my mum, you know, takes me down. And there's, and there's comedians going on, singers going on auditions. All right, next one. Oh, what are you going to do? Play the trumpet. Okay, let's say you play. Of course. And I reeled off something. They went, wow, what was that? You know, because it, it was so unusual. It was me so little. <laughs> so Levis went, we've got to have him. We've got to have him in the show. I joined. I was there for four years, standing innovations, because I was so... You see, I keep, I keep saying how did, so you, how did you cope with... I mean, that's that kind of attention mm. can sort of... Mess anybody up of any age. I mean, how? I was too how, young. How, how, <laughs> did you? What, yeah. What was going through your mind? What would you? What would you do when you got off stage? What, I mean, what? No, nothing really. I mean, I, I spent those four years travelling around and working, living in theatrical digs. I've still got my digs book. Four pounds a week at Mrs. Smith in in in, in Glasgow or something. So like were you that. getting paid for this? Oh, yeah. Your parents were getting the money. How no, did no, no. Use? I got paid for it. And in those days, I think I got the princely sum of seven pounds fifty. £7.50 a week, out of which I could pay my accommodation, my theatrical digs, do whatever I wanted did to. Did you have a chaperone? Were your dad, was no, your dad with no, you? No, no. So ha- what age were you again at this level? I, was, that was, I would be about, about 11, 12. 11, so you 12. were out Actually there touring school. on your own, getting paid, yeah, paying yeah, your own yeah, digs. Yeah, yeah, when I was about 12. But I mean, growing up, <laughs> having to grow up that fast, you must have... I mean, you really did miss out on a normal oh, yeah. sort of I childhood. I didn't have a normal childhood at all. I didn't have a normal teenage life. And do you sort of look back on that now and feel regretful for, for that, that you sort of missed out? Well, I do in one way, but I don't in another way, because mm. I wouldn't have done what I've done, touch what I'm very grateful for in the last... Let's be honest, I've been very successful in what mm. I've done in the last mm. 50 years. So if I'd have had a normal childhood and teenager, who knows, I, I might just... Have, I don't know. Been a normal done. person. Been a normal person. And who wants to be a normal person? Exactly, exactly. So I mean, there was a, but there was a price to pay, wasn't there? I mean, yes. you know, it's what you've had yeah. great success. Yeah. Yes, but yeah. yes, the, the, oh, there are there are downsides to it. When I look back and I see my grandkids, the way they grew up and everything, I didn't do any of that. What they do, you see what I mean? It was like uh, my parents didn't have much hesitation in letting me go and do it on my own. When I think back. I'd hate one of my kids to go on the road at 12 years old and look after themselves. You just wouldn't. It wouldn't ah, happen, would it? You wouldn't do it, obviously. You wouldn't do but it. But times have changed. Times have changed. In Conversation with Gary Williams. In those days, you had to go in the forces when you were 18, you see. So I came home, waiting to my call-up papers, went to the Air Force... I put a little notice on the board about were there any musicians, and would you believe piano, bass, and drums turned up out of the blue? <laughs> so what happens? I form a little band. The CEO hears it, <gasps> wonderful, and I became his blue-eyed boy. I had a little staff car that I used to go out and do my gigs. <laughs> it was amazing, actually. I had the luckiest time in the air force. Because they posted me, it was at the time of the war in Korea, and a lot of the lads I was with, with you got your notice where you were going. Such a body, such a body, career, such a body. Fisher, High Wycombe. <laughs> High Wycombe, which was headquarters, Bomber Command. Quite Tell me about your next record. This is dear old Frank Sinatra. To work with Frank was really uh, an experience. That's all I can say. I mean, the very first thing was a phone call 
Tony, would you like to do this this tour with Sinatra? I said, no, no, I don't want, I don't want to work that rubbish for. <laughs> no, 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 I'm being, I'm being silly. But I was up to the eyes in doing all the Tony Bennett with Sammy Davis, with all those people. So it, it, was, it was like I was used to it all. So when I got the call to do it, I said, OK. The guy, the contractor said, OK, uh, Frank's staying at the Savoy Hotel and there's a rehearsal on the Monday afternoon at 3 o'clock at the Savoy and we're doing uh, a week at the Albert Hall. Fine. I left him plenty of time. I've been working in London for donkey's years. Get there, traffic, complete gridlock. So eventually I got there, struggled with the traffic, walked into Savoy about 20 past three, and the rehearsal was three o'clock. I opened the doors, oh, and there's a huge, there's about a 40, 50 piece of orchestra, strings, everything, all sitting waiting. And the contractor said to me, oh, no one's ever late for Frank, no one's ever late for Frank. I said, I I'm sorry, what can I say? I couldn't get... So I've got to get to my where I'm going to sit. And as I'm getting through, I say, where the trumpets? Oh, no. They're right at the front. And guess what? As like six feet away from where I would be sitting was a little high stool and somebody sitting on this high stool. Folded arms. And you know the famous old blue eyes? Forget it. They were killer eyes you've never seen. I thought, oh, my God. And it's all deadly silence, deadly silence. I thought, I'm dead. I'm in the Thames after this rehearsal, never to be found again, disappear, disappear, because I could just tell the atmosphere was electric, that he was going to kill me, he was going to kill me. And he's looking straight at me, the eyes, they don't look at you, they go right through your head, right through to the back, you know. And I thought, jeez, I'm telling this, I didn't say a word. I open the book, come round and come shout. Uh, oh, okay. And the introduction of it, of all things, there's lovely strings and a little trumpet solo. And guess whose part it was on? It was on mine. And I'd not had time to warm up or nothing. And I thought, this is going to make it worse. And I played it. And I played it okay. Suddenly, the face changed, beaming smile. Okay, girls, we'll get on with the rehearsal, no problem. And I thought, wow, I'm going to live to another day. <laughs> That's as true as God. And it scared the daylights out of me, I'll tell you. Nothing has frightened me much in my life, but that did. I thought, whoa, it's going to be curtains for me. You know? That's Frank Sinatra, come rain or come shine, from Sinatra with strings. He had a reputation, didn't he, for being... Uh, being a bit of a tough guy. Did you ever yes. see that? Yes. Or was that just talk? No, no. no I, I, people say he was awkward and a, t- a tough guy because he was so good. He wanted everything to be exactly right. I'm talking about the lights, the sound, the clothes. Everything had got to be right. And if it wasn't right, wow, look out, you're in trouble. If the sound wasn't right, the sound guy was out, gone, never seen again. I mean, would, you music... just, would, he just, would the guy just be fired? Or yeah. Would you, would you just, would, did, you ever, did you ever see him, you know, get upset? Oh, yeah, yeah. He, um, it's terrible, really. But he, Frank Jr., his son, was the MD on two of the tours I did, I think. And uh, he used to have a real go at Frank Jr. on the stage, you know, loud, it's Frank Jr. start an introduction to something and he'd turn around and take a sip of his, of his Jack Daniels like he always did, I say, and he says, Don't you know the tempo of this tune yet? What's the matter with you? Really loud. So, like, the first rose would see it, hear it. And I used to think, oh, man, I do, you know. Um, it, was, it was an awkward situation. When, the, when everything was okay, it was absolutely fine, and he did a lot of very nice things. Everywhere we worked, 
we were all, we always stayed in the same places, which is a twist with Sinatra, a big hotel, and he treated everybody very well that did the job right. And it, I suppose if he did it wrong, it would be bad news, but consequently, with it being like that, nobody did the job wrong, you know. Did you ever have one-on-one -on -one with him or hang out with him? Mm. I wonder whether they can say Go these on. things. <laughs> you can edit these things, can't you? One hotel, we were at the usual scene. We did the concert, which was fantastic. Came back to the hotel, had the meal, everything else. And uh, <laughs> after it, uh, it, was, it was like two o'clock in the morning, I suppose. And we all, I was going up to my room, and, I, and a few of the guys in the band said, oh, we'll, we'll go and have a drink in the room. I said, well, I've got a bottle of scotch that I bought on the way over, so I'll... I'll, I'll go and get mine from the room and we'll go to whoever's room it is and we'll have a drink. These were the guys in the band, just not Frank, just us, you see. And I was, well, I must be honest, I'd had quite a lot to booze by then. I don't drink before the show, I don't. But afterwards, of course, I'll go and have whatever. And I, I was a bit staggering, you know. I was up to this big hotel. <laughs> I go to my room, somehow found this bottle of whiskey, came out and I staggered down the corridor. Bear in mind, two o'clock in the morning, quiet, very quiet in the hotel. I turned a corner with my bottle of whiskey in my hand and there's a figure with a key going, couldn't get it in the door or on, and it was Frank. I couldn't believe it. What? And he's going, and he looks at me clutching a bottle of whiskey. <laughs> and I thought, I thought, do I offer him a drink? What do I do? <laughs> no, he was struggling. He said, and he's shouting at this bloody door. And... And evidently, there was a panic went on, and a little uh, guy came up from the hotel. Oh, sorry, sorry, Mr. You know, and he had to open the door, and the door was locked from the inside. Now, because what I'm saying is dangerous territory, because someone had locked it from the inside. And, you know, he turned around to my face, and through those, those wonderful eyes that were completely brainless by this time, he said, you know, if it was anybody else but in that room, I'd kick the fucking door down. <laughs> I love him. It's, it's, you know. <laughs> oh, but he was. Uh, I thought he was great. I really, I really did. And I must say, I've never, in all the people I've ever worked with, ever, and I'm going through everybody here. There was a, there was an atmosphere. As soon as he walked out, there was an atmosphere. It just happened. No matter what country it was or whatever, the lights would go down, and a voice would just say, "Mr. Frank Sinatra," and he just walk on, and the place went sort of electric, and he. He didn't talk much on the shows. All he did was say the tune he's going to sing, who did the arrangement, who wrote it. That's all. He didn't do anything about, oh, I did this in my film, something, or I did that. He just gave credit to the, the writer and the arranger. Uh, and we all, I, I think that's marvellous to do that. I really do. You know, you get used to people saying about, this is when I did this and this. And, of course, he'd got a marvellous career in films and everything. Never mentioned him once. Just said the title of the tune and the arranger. Do you think he so, was the best? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like you say that like it's obvious, like yeah. way above. But, but yeah. what, what, just, you don't I know don't, why? I, I can't understand why. Because, I mean, for example, I, I like very much working with Tony Bennett. I did several things with Tony. Great, to my money, a great singer, you know. Uh, it's it just, like, I don't know. There's just like this aura. Once or twice, he would, uh, at a rehearsal, he'd rehearse the band. Frank himself would rehearse the band. And so, oh, 
hang on, the sax is a bit too loud there, and when this is not as well. And that's, you know, he wanted things to do in certain ways. He knew exactly what he was on about all the time. And, well, he could put the Jack Daniels away like you wouldn't believe. I mean, uh, when we did these after the concerts, we'd go and have this meal, and he'd be the last one out. He'd be, really, you know, he'd be, whoa, welcome to Jack Daniels. And he used to, on the stage, he'd have a glass of, and it was, we, you know, some people do that as a bit of a gag, but he was serious, he'd have a glass of Jack Daniels, you know, and, um, you know, he, he had a, quite a big hit with uh, Strangers in the Night, didn't he? And, and the MD would start the introduction, he'd say, going to sing this tune, um, I think he said, written by this German guy, or something like that, <laughs> And he'd turn around, flip back to the audience and pick up his glass and he'd look at the band and say, I hate this fucking tune. <laughs> In conversation with Gary Williams. Me personally, I didn't get that. I'd go and have a couple of pints of beer, sure I would, with, with, other, with the other guys and stuff. But a few of them got seriously into drinking. And musicians, there's a lot of jokes in there. Oh, the. Uh, the, the, the band's gone to the pub, we'll have to have a break now because they won't be back, you know. And there were a lot of those jokes which cut me very badly because a lot of the guys did that drinking business because they were really worried about the performance, about the playing. Particularly on a live TV show and stuff like that, they'd be, they might be really uptight about doing it, so they'd have one drink that developed to another drink and, and a few of them would go downhill. I'd have seen some disasters with people who obviously drink too much, but it certainly isn't the case so much now in the last 20 years. It's gone much, much more the other way. They'll have a drink, but nothing like... I mean, there were a few of the guys in those old days that would really put a lot of stuff away, and it, it worked for them sometimes. Sometimes, sadly, it didn't. Do you think people felt under pressure to drink more? Uh, that happened to me. That happened to me because... I didn't really... I'd sooner have had a cup of tea, really, than have a pint of beer. But if I was in a trumpet section with... Usually trumpets, there's four players. And often in the studio, I'd be with three other guys that instantaneously, when it came to the break, right, we're going to the pub. And I didn't want to go to the pub. And I think that, that really put me in a little bit of a, a, bit of a slot. You know what I mean? So I, so I didn't do it. I didn't go along with it. And I think sometimes that put me a little bit out on a limb, as regards the other guys, you know. Nobody ever said anything, but I just sensed it sometimes. But nowadays, that, that isn't the case at all. Uh, these, a lot of these younger guys, not, not many of them drink at all. Some of them do, but what they do is, is nothing in comparison with what the, uh, you know, I could, oh, I could give you some horror stories about some film sessions and stuff that I used to go on, and, and it'd be treble whiskies at 9am before you start. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that happened quite a few times. With, with not just me, I mean, I wouldn't, but all the other guys would. Before we started, nine o'clock in the morning. It must have affected their playing detrimentally sometimes. Sometimes, sometimes it did, sometimes it did. How, what, how did that, I mean, what, what, then, what would happen? The, 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 well, they just wouldn't get asked again. But it didn't happen very much, you see, because they were so conditioned to working like that. There's a lot of very great players, I'm not mentioning any names here, but there are one or two over the years that are dead and gone now, that actually they would drink a ridiculous amount of stuff, but then play like an angel, absolute, and wouldn't be able to speak. You know, uh, yeah, seriously. You know, oh, as bad as that, but give them an instrument and bang, and it was perfect. Tell me about your next record. Mm, it's uh, Live at Ronnie Scott. Yeah. This is a record... Uh, 
called Rue Chaptal, and it's by the Kenny Clark Francie Boland big band, which hardly anybody ever heard of except avid jazz fans, the real jazz fans. Because to my mind, and to a lot of other people's minds, that was the greatest big band there ever, ever was. Ever. And it was 90% expatriate American musicians that went to live in Europe after the, uh, in the 50s and 60s. I used to sit there, Gary, I swear to God, and I didn't play. I just sit and listen to what was going on around me. It was blindingly good. I mean, uh. in conversation with Gary Williams. We went up to a place in northern Finland, north of the Arctic Circle, end of the world, a jazz festival. The band went on the stage at about 10 o'clock at night, so it was a festival, so we were the big attraction. Went on the stage at 10, supposed to be off about 11.15. 2.30 in the morning, we were still playing. I think half the audience had gone, didn't matter. The band was fantastic. It was, wow, it left the ground. So it's hard to explain if, if you're not actually a musician. I'll never experience anything like that ever again. It was the greatest musical experience of my life. You've worked with people in my heroes like uh, Ella Fitzgerald mm. and Sammy Davis Jr. Yeah. and Bing Crosby and Fred yeah. Astaire, yeah. Harry James. Yeah. They say never meet your heroes or probably mm. work with them, but was was Oh, did... I did. Uh, all of them. <laughs> was all it good them. for you? Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it's a little cliche, I suppose, but I find the ones that are really at the top of the tree, not the ones that are three-quarters up the tree, they're, the, they're real quality people as well as being the greatest. Bing Crosby, classic example. Fred Astaire, another one. Were you ever tempted to ask anybody for an autograph? Bing, I asked Bing, of course I did. And I mean, were you Fred ever Astaire. genuinely sort of starstruck? Uh, that only applies to me with trumpet players. As usual in the old studio days, all you do is sit at home waiting for the phone to ring and phone goes, can you go uh, Decker Studios, 10 till 5? Okay. Walk in the studio... And someone says, oh, do you know, his, do you know who's, what, what the album is? I said, no, it's Harry James. He's doing a solo album and we're in the, the big band. I thought, wow, that's lovely, you know. So we come in the studio. Uh, oh, it was hysterical. He said, fellas, I've, I've, got, to, I've got to apologise, you know, to you guys. He said, I, I'm, I'm on the road with the band all the time. I don't play like you do, you know. And I thought, what? This is Harry James saying this, you know. He, and he meant it. He said, no, I don't play like, like you guys. I, I'm on you know, Las Vegas and here, there. But anyway, the engineer sets the band up and he put a microphone at the front about, say, 10 feet, 15 feet away from the band with a microphone and, stuff, and for Harry to play. We play the Harry gets his instrument out and he's looking at oh, we're going to play, OK. Gets his instrument out. We play the introduction and Harry gets in and he goes... Bang! And when he played, and the engineer went, Jesus, stop, stop, stop! <laughs> and we all, we could, of course, we had the sound. The sound he played was like that wide, like three trumpet players. He went, boom! You know, wow! The engineer, stop, stop, stop! And Arthur, his name was the engineer at Decca, he's there for donkey's years. Arthur was running down the stairs at the box, and Christ, that, we can't do that. It's what? Hang on, whoa, stop, stop, just a minute. He got Harry, it took him at least... I'd say 30 yards away from the band. 
you know, Decca 3 is like an old barn. It was a great, big, silly studio. We were there. Harry was at the other end, miles away, because the sound was that big. It was wiping out everything that Harry played. So he went up there, and he did his bit there, and we played it, and he was sensational. And, it, I mean, he played gloriously. Comes, uh, it was 10 o'clock start, comes 11.30, break, to go for a 15-minute break. So, so, so Harry comes, OK, guys, we're going, we're going to the pub, because it's American, and pubs weren't, you know. We're going to the pub for a drink. So, oh, OK, and uh, me, I thought, well, all right, I'll go along with everybody else. We go into the pub. There's a, virtually the whole band going to the pub with Harry. See? Straight away, large ones. Everybody has a, a drink. It's 11.30 in the morning, but, and we've got the rest of the day to go, you know. So <laughs> comes around, pull the drinks out. Right, we'll have this drink, and it gets uh, a 15-minute break. Right, we're taking the break at what eleven thirty. It gets to quarter twelve, and everyone's going. Um, uh, you know, we've got to get back to the. We, we didn't say anything, but we've got to get back to the. You know, and uh, I said, Harry, we got said we were supposed to be. No, no, no! Have another drink. What are we having? Another large drink. So I said, Oh crap! What's going on here? So we all had another drink. Then the contractor appeared. It was like half. With it half an hour later or something, the contract for the job, who is paying the money and the record company and all that, he walked in, what's happening, fellas, what's happening, what's happening? We said, Harry, Harry said, it's OK, it's OK. And we all, <laughs> oh, I love this guy with so much, you know. <laughs> so, so we all went back in the studio and he played like a dream and he, he had a little guy with him, a little Italian guy who was his um, manager or whatever, whatever, what looks after him, you know. He kept coming up, a glass of water like that, and giving it, putting it on Harry's stand or something. And I thought, oh, yeah, he must have drank about six of them, you know, because I thought, bloody, yeah, it is hot a bit playing, you know. Found out later it was neat vodka. It must have done at least a bottle of vodka or more. During the playing, the recording, oh, oh I feel a bit dry, you know, bang, have another. And it was neat vodka. It was a notorious drinker, but what a player. Oh, oh, stunning. I loved it. He was great. He was really something else. In Conversation Radio with Gary Williams. The best in music and conversation every week. What about Ella Fitzgerald? She was like, like your auntie, a nice little old lady. I was sitting down having a glass of water or something in one of the breaks, you know, and she was sitting down next to me. It was very hot and she was all, and somebody was saying, Are you all right? I said, yeah, I'll be, I'll be all right in a minute. And then she'd go on the stage, bang, and nailed wherever she was singing like a dream. You mentioned uh, earlier on uh, The X Factor. You, uh, I, I take it you're not a, a fan. To me, if, if that's going to be top-of-the-rung entertainment Saturday night television for people to watch, surely to God it's got to be pretty good, hasn't it? I told you, I started in Variety on the stage. The people and the Variety shows could do things very well. Somebody was doing something that they couldn't do. But now, everybody can do exactly what these people are doing that they're going to see. Do you see, what, you see my point? Someone can say, oh, I could sing like that. And the trouble is, they could sing like that. So, what, what's the point? It, it, there's just there's no, there's no sense in that. It's got to be higher. The level has got to be higher to, to make it being worthwhile entertainment. Otherwise, I'm not interested. I'm sorry, I just, I'm not. You just, and I've done lots of things, as I said, with a lot of good, a lot of good things, and a lot of really, really awful things, which turned out massively successful. 
You did a lot of the early Bond film yes, scores. Did a, yeah, did about the first half a dozen Bond films. So we can hear you on the fada fada. Yeah, that was me, I'm afraid. Yeah. We had no idea when it started that it was going to become like it did. You know? So how does it work? Do you get sort of 10p every time somebody no, plays no, the Bond thing? No, 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 no. I do get royalties, yes, but usually off TV shows, but also off records. I did um, a couple of Beatles albums, so I get royalties, some royalties. A Which ones? Tiny bit. The tunes I did were Hey Jude and something else. <laughs> Now, you see, this sounds dreadfully blasé to say this, but those Beatles sessions were at Abbey Road. We all turn up at 10 o'clock in the morning, and it's yet another little group of four lads, you know, which we'd all been recording with for the last... Old groups appeared, back in, in the door, play the rotten tune out again, you know, they forgot about it. This was virtually exactly the same. We walked into the studio, played it, and it was all right, but it was nothing... Spectacular. Anyway, in other words, at one o'clock we'd leave the studio, and half past one after your cup of tea, you'd forgotten all about it and wondering what the next job was going to be. And it turned out later to be the Beatles. You know what I mean? And we did, nobody, we didn't know them. They didn't know anything. And um, did you meet the, the the lads? They were there at the yeah, time. Yeah. And you, you just didn't think anything no, of it. You heard any? They're another group. Like, like you've probably done one the day before, which looks exactly the same. Or something. You don't recall anything from it. No. Or what was going on at the time? No. You just got in, played the charts. I was in one of the maybe hundred people that did everything. It sounds silly that, but we did because you'd get calls from all the different TV companies, the different record companies, to go and do these things. It was a treadmill of work. Did you ever have sort of moments with all of you, sort of moments of excess, where it was just like spending fortunes on silly things? Oh, oh, I've done all that. I've had two Ferraris for a start off. <laughs> That's not bad. <laughs> I used to have a boat down at the coast and big silly house like you wouldn't believe for a lot of years. Because my accountant used to say, you really should go out and spend some more money. One year I bought three houses, I think. Well, if a house cost you 5000 you're earning 25000 You must feel sorry for younger... I do. Yeah. I feel dreadfully sorry for them. I really do. I'm glad you said that. I just happened to be that I could play. Yes, I could play. So can a lot of other guys could play. But if you happen to be there at that time, which I was, bullseye. You've chosen something from uh, Burt Camfort's band, which you've had a big, yeah. uh, long association with. Yes, yeah. Again, I'm at home, get a phone call. Can I go to join Burt Camfort's band in Hamburg? He said, oh, I've got you in and Jigs Wiggum on trombone and, 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 and uh, Herb Geller on lead alto to, to soften the band up. He said, because it, it, it's very German. <laughs> Well, he was bless him. He was a German man himself. He said, "You know, it needs it needs to be, you know." So, and that's and that's why I was there. In conversation with Gary Williams. Do you worry about getting older? No, I, I don't worry about getting older. And, and actually, I, I enjoy. I really enjoy myself now. I replaced Humphrey Littleton in his band. So I do that, I do the Ronnie Scott big band, I do various other jazz clubs and jazz places, which is what I wanted to do when I started 80 years ago. That's exactly, so I've gone the full 
<laughs> and come back to where I started, trying to play the chord changes on some tune, you know. Even after all these years, I still like playing. You know, it's not a job that I'm, I can't wait to get out of it. I want to do it. So, I, so it's just the opposite for me. Uh, there's no talk of retirement and stuff. No way. One of these days, I'm going to pick it up and go, bang, over, finish, end of story. Play it in the minor key. <laughs> Thanks for listening. If you want to get in touch and hear more interviews just like this one, head over to my website, garywilliams.co.uk.